0: Section 1 of The Dial, May 1920. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Reading by Matt Perrard. The Dial, May 1920, by Various. Section 1. James Elroy Flacker An Appreciation and Some Personal Memories, by Douglas Goldring, Of the many young poets who died or were killed during the European War, none, perhaps, has proved a greater loss to English letters than James Elroy Flecker. By his death in Switzerland of consumption at the age of 30, England was deprived of a poet who loved her passionately, whose work will endure long into the days of peace, whose reputation is likely to go on increasing, rather than to wane at present his poetry is still i think not so generally familiar as it deserves to be though the number of his admirers is steadily growing both in england and in america flecker was never the idol of any particular set during his lifetime and since his death very little has been written about his personality as it appeared to those who knew him beyond mr squire's valuable introduction to the collected poems. My first clear recollection of James Flecker centers on an evening spent with him in a Bloomsbury lodging-house in the early summer of 1907. He had come down from Oxford that year, and had recently, I think, been schoolmastering in Hampstead. The house, which was in Torrington Square, on the left-hand side as you walk towards the Irvingite church, seemed dark and half-deserted on my arrival, and its cavernous hall was illuminated only by one flickering gas-jet, halfway up the stairs. Flecker's sitting-room was at the back, on the second floor, and on the night of my visit it was in an extraordinary state of chaos, reminding one of nothing so much as the inner parlor of a second-hand bookseller's shop. Books and papers lay about everywhere, heaped together in hopeless confusion. A wave of paper-covered books seemed to have broken over the table and spent itself on the floor. More piles of books stood in all the corners and on the chimney-piece. The bookcases overflowed. Pictures were stacked against the skirting-board or lay face-downwards on the carpet. A typewriter, somewhere, disentangled itself from amidst piles of manuscript and jumbled up with french spanish or italian novels foreign illustrated papers and sumptuous editions of the greek and latin poets were liqueur bottles glasses copies of laisette au beurre packets of caporal cigarettes a withering glare of unshaded incandescent gas poured down on this confusion in the midst of which tall and lean with black hair and heavy eyebrows stalked the unforgettable figure the details of what took place that evening remain with peculiar distinctness in my memory though it was not of course my first meeting with flecker this must have been in a drawing-room in chelsea for i did not know him at oxford except by repute his fame at oxford for the kind of brilliance then in vogue was astonishing his japes were repeated everywhere and long before i met him i had heard so much about his genius that i was filled with suspicions determined at all costs not to be unduly impressed in those days i had my own gods and was prepared to find other people's inferior any prejudices with which i may have arrived at flecker's rooms were however very soon dispersed Never shall I forget the way he talked. The window of the room was wide open at the bottom, framing a square of dark blue night, and through it, as an undertone to his conversation, came the faint, thrilling roar of London. He was tremendously excited, in an extraordinary mood of elation. He was excited about his first book of poems, which was shortly to be published by Mr. Elkin Matthews excited about his novel the king of alsander of which the opening chapters had just been typed and above all excited so it seemed by the sheer joy of being alive of having the world in front of him i remember that he read me the two poems ideal and the town without a market which i fancy he had just completed and i can hear him now repeating the lines when all my gentle friends had gone i wandered in the night alone beneath the green electric glare i saw men pass with hearts of stone yet still i heard them everywhere those golden voices of the air friends we will go to hell with thee in his gentle rather high-pitched enthusiastic voice with its latent suggestion of melancholy and after this he read me the first two chapters of the king of alsander and never before i thought had work of such epic-making brilliance been written alas when i read the poor old king in his entirety seven years later it was a blow to find how time had robbed him of his glamour then he talked of his approaching visit to france with a friend in the foreign office they were off to plunge into some kind of rising among the vigneron of the bordeaux district where at that time catholicism was in conflict with the republic flecker produced the rigolo which he was taking with him its barrel glinted in the gaslight somehow he made the adventure of being young almost unimaginably thrilling at that time i was an ardent francophile and flecker seemed to have done all the things which i at twenty was pining to do myself it appeared that he knew paris almost as well as london had been to all the cabarets of montmartre and the latin quarter was familiar with Steinmann's work not so hackneyed in those far-off days of which he had many reproductions and could hum all the songs of brampe lucien or marinier, flecker was essentially of the fine flower of the english public school and university system he was entirely absorbed in his art and in the loveliness of a world seen through the eyes of a scholar and a poet never before or since have i encountered anyone with such a rapturous with such an intoxicating joy of living our talk soon came back to poetry to his own poems and as i listened to be a poet seemed the most wonderful thing in a world full of the maddest most delicious possibilities that was one aspect of flecker there was another behind his delight in life could be detected even then an undernote of sadness when he wrote of himself as the lean and swarthy poet of despair it was probably a joke it was still the fashion to be despairing in those days but like all jokes worth making there was a flavour of truth in it it's difficult to avoid the thought that some of the extraordinary rapture with which he looked on the world was due in part to a premonition that he was not long to inhabit it that his time for enjoyment was too short to allow him a moment to waste traces of this undernote are to be found perhaps in the poem called no coward's song and again in the lines called Prayer, which were written, I think, in 1907. Let me not know, except from printed page, the pain of bitter love, of baffled pride, or sickness shadowing with a long presage. Let me not know, since happy some have died, quickly in youth or quietly in age, how faint, how loud the bravest hearts have cried. Flecker and I am met very frequently after the evening in Torrington square and the flat of a friend in south london on these occasions he was nearly always surrounded by people who knew him better than i did and my impressions are now a little blurred but i retain a glimpse of him sitting at the piano dressed up in a japanese kimono smiling his pleasant rather sardonic smile and thumping out the tune of la branche des Las, or navajo while the rest of us shouted the choruses, and I remember many amusing contests of wit, in almost all of which Flecker came off best. Not quite in all, however, for I was present at his waterloo. The cult of the suburban music hall was just beginning in those days, in interior circles, and it was a little cockney dancer called Gertie, who On an historic evening, our hostess, shamelessly abetting her, succeeded in worsting him. Gertie had learned her back-chat in the new cut, or else had taken lessons from a bus conductor. Never before have I listened to such a torrent of droll invective as she poured out on the poet's, for once, defenseless head. Flecker's wit on that occasion was certainly no match for Gertie's humor, though I think This was the only time I ever knew him to be verbally at a disadvantage. The incident which really formed the beginning of my more intimate acquaintance with Flecker is one which reveals him so clearly that I must relate it, though it be at my own expense. When his first volume of poems, The Bridge of Fire, was published, I expected something prodigious, and got Lord Alfred Douglas to let me have it to review for the Academy alas the book did not at all come up to the expectations i had formed and in my disappointment i felt constrained to administer a sincere if rather jejune slating one took oneself with tremendous solemnity in those days and all our little circle was scandalised every one indeed was extremely angry with me except flecker for all i know he may have been amused and interested to hear one note of criticism however inept amid a chorus of equally inept praise in any case he contented himself with addressing a rejoinder to the academy which was published the week after my notice a rejoinder of much skill and the most perfect good temper and when some time later i myself commenced author with a pamphlet of youthful verses he heaped coals of fire on my head by taking the trouble to review it in a Cambridge paper in terms of the greatest generosity. Our connection of author and publisher, which was the last until his death, began in 1910, when I started a monthly magazine of earnest literary aspirations. In the first number of this periodical, Flecker's most intimate Oxford friend had let me print a poem called The Visit, and Flecker himself became a fairly frequent contributor. The poems called In Memoriam, Pillage, and The War Song of the Saracens first appeared in its pages, and one or two others which I think have not been reprinted. About this time I got the firm which owned the magazine to issue a volume of Flecker's verses, to which he gave the title Thirty-six Poems but the concern having, unfortunately, more good intent than capital, or business management, the volume did not prosper, and on the demise of the magazine, after a year's unavailing struggle for existence, the sheets of Flecker's book were transferred to Mr. J. M. Dent and Company, Limited. Mr. Dent reissued the book in 1911 with six additional poems, under the more familiar name of forty-two Poems, during the next two years i heard but little of flecker he left england to take up a consular appointment and was stationed first at constantinople then at smyrna and finally at beirut in nineteen eleven he travelled in greece and it was at athens that he married the greek lady mademoiselle helle skidaressi who was to prove to him so true a companion and friend and whose devotion did so much to prolong his life it was not until early in nineteen thirteen that i got into touch with him again i had at that time become associated with the firm of max goshen which had just started business this firm owing to the regretted death of its proprietor who was killed in france no longer exists flecker wrote to me from beirut in february nineteen thirteen mentioning that he had a new book of verse nearly ready and lamenting the poor sales of his forty-two poems by this time and indeed ever since the days of the academy review my belief in flecker was unshakable and i knew that sooner or later he was bound to come into his own i was delighted when he accepted our offer for his new book which was made before we had seen any of the manuscript and i wrote to promise that i personally would do all i possibly could to push the sails it was to this end with a view of stirring up the pond and goading the reviewers into animation that i urged him to write the now famous preface and to make it fiercely controversial the first of the letters from flecker which i have been able to find among my papers is dated May 10th, from Beirut. Already his illness was upon him, and there is no doubt that the task of getting the golden journey to Samarkand into its final shape, after very heavy and painstaking alterations, exhausted all his strength. I am very ill again, he writes, and probably shall come to England. Can't work at much, and hardly at this letter. The preface was an awful strain. He did not, of course, return to England, which he was never to see again, but went instead to Switzerland. His next letter, dated June 5th, came from lesson sur Thank the Lord. This place is curing me. The journey nearly killed me. There is nothing terribly wrong, but I shall take a month or two to recover, and always have to live with precaution. Meantime, many thanks for your kind letter. Herewith i have sent the proofs complete please look over the revised or taoping in its new version will come out in a hash left out first page of preface as being rather babyish you might let me know what you think of the book and especially of my alterations to gates of damascus and taoping i am immensely proud of it i've turfed out all the rot it seems to me and to the few critics who have seen it to be miles ahead of the forty-two, if the publisher wants to puff me, he can safely say that the Oriental poems are unique in English. I do wish one could have a few deluxe copies, as they do in France, on fine paper with fine binding. I have, alas, lost a good deal more than ten pounds in not having time to get all the poems into mags. In particular, Oak and Olive was being kept by the fortnightly and they sent it back because they had no time to publish it by June. But never mind, let's out with the book at once. I have some glorious translations from Paul Fort and other modern Frenchmen, but I prefer to keep the golden journey original from beginning to end. I heard from him a week later, still from Leson, a long and very lucid business letter chiefly about the king of Alsander and the behavior of another publisher who, after accepting the book and getting Flecker to alter it two or three times, eventually refused to bring it out on the ground that he had lost interest. There can be no point in recalling such a controversy now, and it is only fair to the publisher in question to assume that there were two sides to the dispute flecker continues thus about the book the novel originally a very poor production is now a very jolly and fantastic work whether it will sell or not i don't believe a publisher in the world could say it may take or it mayn't i'll send it to you if you like but hey, mistress goshen may well fight shy of a book which another publisher has broken his contract to evade publishing b it might be better to get compensation before i get another publisher yet it might again be better the other way mr goshen needless to say were quite prepared to publish anything which flecker chose to send them i must however confess that when the manuscript of the king of Alsander reached me my heart sank a little in spite of all the pleasant memories which the opening chapter revived I did not think that the book had much chance of selling, or indeed that it particularly deserved to sell, and I wrote to Flecker explaining my reasons for this opinion. His reply is dated June 21st. My dear Goldring, thanks so much for writing promptly and at such length. The novel is a most patchy affair. I quite agree with you. I am not a novelist because I don't really think novels worth writing at the bottom of my heart yet it did not burn the old king of Alsander. It is, by God, seven years since I lost the first three chapters of it on the way to Paris with blank and blank of your acquaintance, because it has, with all its faults, some passages which I think rather jolly, and because, even if a bit laboured in parts, it is such a joyously silly performance. I have written to Gaussians, accepting their offer. A drama is a thing. Now, that is worth writing. I have had most encouraging letters about my work in that direction from blank. But I hope that Granville Barker and no other will take up Hassan, my Oriental play. It may interest you to know that Yasmin is out of my play, was written for it, and also the golden journey to Samarkand is nothing but the final scene. I admit a little verse into my play here and there read the poem called the golden journey and consider the pilgrim with the beautiful voice to be hassan the hero of a whole drama and think what it would sound like actually on the stage with granville barker scenery moonlight more alive to-day i hope the novel may succeed after all it is pleasant of you to be so prompt the misery of literary people the spectator and the nation will return or accept pretty quick The blank is hopeless, utterly. Blank are, I think, mad. Good god, if one ran the rottenness of little vice consulates in the way the blank is run, there'd be a row in a month. Ever yours thankfully, J E Flecker PS one should much like to read your novel. Didn't know you'd written one. Two. What do you think? If by any chance the golden journey gets known. Of having the Oriental Poems, plus Saracens and Ballad of Iskander from forty two, illustrated by Syme for a Christmas volume three. Shan't anthologize after what you told me Thanks I have one more letter from him from Layson, dated june thirtieth, in which the following interesting passage occurs in Facia, the rottenest poem in the book should appear in everyman and Ping in the Spectator. at uh, what the citadel of respectability stormed this week did you see solomon eagle's extremely amusing gibe at me in the new statesman who is he am getting fatter and stronger i hope to be in england producing my play this autumn why does no one translate great french books like jules renard's lantern sword or claude Berrer's marvellous tale, The Golden Journey to Samarkand was issued in the early part of July 1913, and was a success almost from the first. About this time, Flecker moved from Lassen to Montana, and the next letter from him I have unearthed came from there, dated August 31st. I have been a most shameful time answering your delightful and enthusiastic letter of congratulation, for which I thank you most heartily the reviews especially the times and the morning Post, have been good enough for shakespeare i do hope they will even be enough to sell a few copies of the book it should hate cautions to be badly had by the transaction i have been bothered lately trying to find a new place to live in and only got here after a frightful lot of bother i am pretty sick of life i finished my play but i don't suppose it will ever be played this letter also contained one of the few suggestions for books in which he was so fertile. I shall write a book one day, he says, on how to spend money in a jolly way for men of moderate income, 500 to 1,500 pounds a year. Tell the blanks they ought to travel. The book will sell by the 100,000 million on the railway bookstalls. In another letter he gives us a glimpse of his life at Montana there is a perpetual sunshine here and a perpetual leisure otherwise there's no particular reason for my continued existence i get neither better nor worse and wait all day for news of hassan from this time onwards perhaps inspired by the magnificent success of the golden journey to samarkand he sent me a stream of projects for books none of which he was destined ever to carry out the only one which he seems seriously to have started is a translation of Virgil's Enid six, of which he writes as follows. My next book is half-written. It is, I'm afraid, rather horrifying. This is the title, An Interpretation in Blank Verse of Virgil Enid Six, based on the poetic value of the sounds, together with the Latin text and ten prefaces, by James Elroy Flecker. 120 pages, wide margins, paper, three six ready in february seriously that is exactly the title i intend to give the book with which i am well advanced already the book is simply an attempt to do a translation of virgil as satisfactory as fitzgerald's omar a translation which will utterly eclipse the very numerous and very feeble attempts hitherto existing the ten prefaces will be as combative as bernard shaw's and occupy some forty pages. They will be on the translation of sound, on blank verse, on hell literature, on preceding translations of Virgil, on modern scholarship, on the modern spirit, etc., etc., and should irritate everyone as effectually as my preface to Samarkand. Here is yet another project, contained in an undated letter. I have long had a scheme for bringing out an anthology of French verse, poets of today and yesterday, from after Hugo and Musset, and not including them, to the present day. Each poet would be preceded by a short notice. In the idea of the short notice and in the period traversed, the book would thus resemble Walch's great three-volume work, but in no other way. One, there would be a larger and very different choice of the more important people, and none of the pages of a dreary rot by the great unknown. Two, the criticisms at the beginning would be original and not borrowed. Three, the whole book would not be more than one volume. And here is a third suggested volume, some materials for which may perhaps have been found among the papers which he left. I have, it is true, a vague scheme for a book. I have quaint ideas on most things, literature, of course, but also current politics, and a million other things. I find that exile makes it useless trying to work those ideas up into articles, and also that, if I do turn them into articles, all my dear ideas become heavy and dull. I don't, for instance, a bit want to write a long review on H. G. Wells, but i do want to say and state my opinion for posterity that his latest work is pompous drivel and that mr Polly is one of the best things ever written in any language i might call the book poet's porridge and should write it very quickly under headings literature politics etc it would consist of little brief paragraphs of rather pithy comment you may not know that i am a violent Phil- Haleen, that will come in also. I am writing a magnificent coronation ode for King Constantine. Just mention the idea to Goshams, will you? Then, if they'd like to see a bit, I'll scrape together a few pages and send them as a specimen. There is something novel about a poet damning round on current events, only, of course, I ought to be better known than I am to get a hearing." His last letter to me from Montana is undated like the others, but since it appears to have been written after the issue of The King of al it was probably sent early in 1914. You know my play, Hassan, is going to be played in London this autumn, if all goes well. I've got an excellent collaborator, Goshen's shall print it, but only after it's played and that's a long way off yet. Otherwise I try to revise another older play of mine and when not sufficiently inspired for that, I do the Virgil, which Gilbert Murray has pronounced to be the best translation of him in English. I can't work much, and haven't at present any original ideas in my head. I am only just now managing to get up to lunch after three months' illness. Hope to go to Locarno soon. will send you address if I move. As for poems, I've only written four since Samarkand, and they be small ones. I owe you many thanks for having introduced me to Goshens. They are certainly advertising excellently. I shall be not only disappointed, but astonished if the king of Alsander don't move. That poetry and drama do irritate me. I don't prefer to your excellent review, with its childish anti-god rubbish. We're about 200 years ahead of these asses on the continent in the middle of a Catholic reaction and leave that sort of vulgarity to the plebs. and its ridiculous abuse of Tennyson and other Victorians. Do they really imagine blank writes as well as Tennyson or Kipling? It's astonishing. Do write again. Do you ever see blank? If so, remember me fondly. The last three of his letters, which I have preserved, were sent from Devos Platz, and make unutterably an sad reading. In the first of them he writes, I am so damned ill, I am almost in despair, and speaks of his disappointment at having lost the Boninac Prize, reporting the fact that Professor Gilbert Murray and Mr. W. B. Yeats voted for him. The second is dated June 1st. My dear Goldring, 1. Do send me any news there is going. Two, no, my dear fellow, don't ask me if I can write a book about Greece. Descriptive tour. I can only preserve the rotten remnants of my life by lying in bed here for years, in the ugliest hole God ever created. Three, but I do intend to publish my great ode to Greece separately, with a forty-page preface of a most violent kind full of abuse and invective of pro-Turks, pro-Bulgars, the liberal press, with history of the Eastern question, I should much value an assurance that Gaussians would take this. It might create a bit of a stir. 4. I'm still waiting to hear from Oxford about my Virgil, and haven't done a line more to it, or indeed to anything, for months. I want to write a play on Judith, and I ought to revise my Don Juan, and I've got to work Hassan with my collaborator. And day after day, I do nothing. Ever yours, James Elroy Flecker. I give all my poems to be a healthy and The last letter is dated October twelfth, 1914. My dear Goldring, I should much like to hear from you. We've got a flat, and I amuse myself by lying in bed all day. I can write only a very little in the morning. have popped a war poem and some prose could we send the dozen of our novels to the navy the officers it seems have only too much time for reading do give me news of you why don't you send me your novel he died on january third nineteen fifteen it was fortunate for flecker that the kind of poetry which by temperament by intellectual equipment and by the circumstances of his birth and upbringing he was most capable of writing seems to have been just the kind which he most wanted to write in this respect his career short as it was was singularly happy he followed no literary wild-goose chase He was not apparently dissatisfied with his manner only with his workmanship which never satisfied him at least a part of his genius seems to have lain in a realization of his exact capacities he seldom gropes after things which are too high for him. I think it can nowhere be said of him that he wrought better than he knew, and to judge from his constant emendations, he seems to have had an almost exaggerated distrust of what Mr. Arthur Symonds has somewhere called the plenary inspiration of first thoughts. In some ways, he was more typically a French than an English poet, and his description of the Parnassians in the preface to The Golden Journey to Samarkand applies to himself almost exactly. Like them, he loathed romantic egoism and aimed at a beauty somewhat statuesque like them he had a fine sense of language using words and epithets with the nicest scholarship and taste and again like them he derived his inspiration from the classics from history from mythology from beautiful names from places and indeed from anything rather than from life it was hardly ever life either in its ordinariness or in its strangeness which flecker succeeded in transmuting into poetry his work is an escape from life, rather than an interpretation of it. And here and there, at his less inspired moments, one feels that it is only its technical brilliance which saves it from having too limiting a flavor of Oxford College. His poetry is usually rather cold, and it cannot be claimed for Flecker that he was remarkable for originality of thought. His emotional range is limited, and his greatest strength lies in his power to create pictures compact clear in outline and rich in colour and in the haunting music of which he had the secret Imo et Kamin would not have made a bad alternative title for his collected work and there are times when he strikes one as being an artificer with imagination or rather when his art seems to resemble that of the jeweller or worker in precious metals his poems, although limited in their range and seldom rising to the highest imaginative level, are yet hammered and worked till they attain a hard, indestructible perfection. It is difficult to believe that work of such a kind will be quickly forgotten, for it seems to possess all the qualities which make for permanence. Flecker's poetry depends on nothing transitory for its interests. It contains no message to grow stale and the extraordinary amount of work put into his verses gives them an impressive solidity it must always be remembered that of flecker that in an age of anarchy in verse he took the trouble to become a master of technique in an age of formlessness he upheld the finest traditions of form what was beautiful two thousand years ago is beautiful still and as flecker has told us himself it was with the single object of creating beauty that his poems were written who can read them and imagine for a moment that he failed in his object one cannot think that the glowing visions which his poems bring before the mind will prove any less enchanting to readers in the centuries to come than they are today. one cannot believe that his lines to a poet a thousand years hence will fail to carry their message through the ages to some craftsman as conscientious as himself. O friend, unseen, unborn, unknown, student of our sweet English tongue, read out my words at night alone. I was a poet. I was young. Since I can never see your face and never shake you by the hand, I send my soul through time and space to greet you. You will understand. End of Section 1